This is Sea Power, a podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to introduce my esteemed colleague and friend, Dr. Peter Dutton. Peter is a professor at the Naval War College's Stockton Center for International Law and also the former director of the China Maritime Studies Institute here. Today, we're going to discuss maritime dynamics in the Indo-Pacific, focusing on Chinese maritime power and competition, the United States and its network of allies and partners, especially the emerging AUKUS grouping of the United States, United Kingdom, and Australia. Views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Peter, it is a pleasure to have you here at the Sea Power Studio. Welcome. Thank you, Isaac, and thank you so much for doing this. So let's jump right into it. We've asked you to come here today to talk about competitive maritime dynamics in the Indo-Pacific, and you have just returned from the region from a session or series of sessions in Canberra. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you are now thinking about AUKUS and maritime dynamics out in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, sure. So uh, I traveled to Canberra. Actually, it was a terrific, uh, terrific opportunity to go and get a sense of how the Australians are thinking about uh, this new arrangement, which we're calling AUKUS. And I'll describe what it is here in just a minute. But it was a terrific opportunity both to see in terms of the official perspectives on AUKUS and then also some academic perspectives. And even in the official perspectives, I was able to see uh, some differences between the defense community in Australia and then other communities, uh, official communities within the Australian government and to see some of the differences there. It was a terrific opportunity to see how Australia is beginning to think about how to respond to China's growing maritime power and China's expansion into the maritime domain. Well, it sounds like you had stimulating set of discussions there. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what it is that prompted the development of AUKUS. What are the strategic interests of the three main sure. players in it? How did that come about? Yeah, sure. So first, let's talk a little bit about what AUKUS is in case sure. not everybody's necessarily familiar. So AUKUS is, is an acronym, right? A-U-K-U-S. So that's Australia, United Kingdom, United States. So it's a, it's a three-way partnership, really, um, at this point that complements other partnerships. For instance, the Five Eyes, right? These are three of the Five Eye states as well. Um, but this is a, a, a new partnership, really, to strengthen cooperation and development of defense technologies. I think that's the starting point. There's a lot of discussion about, well, AUKUS started essentially as a discussion about how to replace the Collins-class uh, submarines, Australia's diesel-class submarines, with the possibility of or, or desire to replace them with nuclear submarines. And so partnering with the United States and with the United Kingdom to develop a replacement for the Collins-class with nuclear submarines is, is kind of where this whole partnership started. But I think um, there's so much more opportunity for defense cooperation in, in a lot of different ways, emerging technologies more broadly, right? So the nature of warfare is changing. You didn't mention, but I was um, interim dean here at the Naval War College's Center for Naval Warfare Studies for uh, just about a year and a half. And one of the things that that did was it helped me to understand the ways in which warfare is evolving just as a matter of changing technology and how 
the United States Navy is is beginning to think about you know engaging with those new technologies uh, to achieve better warfare effects, and you know that requires partnerships. So, for instance, Australia is is a real global leader in uh, quantum computing. For instance, right? They have a, a, an incredible quantum computing center there. That's a particular strength for Australia. So, my view is that AUKUS is not something that just needs to be about a nuclear submarine program. Although I look forward to that becoming a reality, but also about how to cooperate to think about developing emerging technologies to work together to uh, achieve our our mutual maritime interests. Um, one of the things that you hear a lot about AUKUS countries in, in terms of naval power is how to develop interchangeability, not just interoperability of, of forces, but interchangeability. And you saw some of this with the way the Queen Elizabeth Royal Navy's aircraft carrier was rolled out with you know, an air wing that included American aviators on it. So this is an example of how these three countries working together actually a couple of examples and how these three countries working together can achieve their mutual interests. You know, there's a, a little bit more to it too, in my view as well. So it's not necessarily just about defense technologies, but also about how maritime states, you know, the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia are all maritime states um, and how we can work together to achieve our common interests in the in the maritime domain. And, and one of the most prominent among those interests is um, reinforcing the, the rules-based maritime order and ensuring stability in the maritime domain. Stability is, of course, really important to, to security. So regional security uh, is obviously important to Australia and the United States, where uh, the Indo-Pacific is, you know, borders our, our states. But at the same time, it's important for every state that is a trading state. And uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, United States, we're trading states. And we rely on the maritime domain to benefit our ability to achieve an additional margin of wealth through trade. Um, So all of these are common interests that Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States can and should work together to achieve. You asked another question, essentially, which was what prompted the development of AUKUS? Why working together? Well, there's a few ways of looking at that. So I think the first way is that China has posed an increasing threat, I'll use that word, to uh, maritime stability in the Indo-Pacific region. Threat might be too strong a word. China has posed increasing concern to those who find a vital interest in stability in the Indo-Pacific maritime uh, domain. Is destabilizing fair if the interest is in stability? Yeah, I think that's great. Actually, that's a really good, that's a good word because I think that's exactly right. I, I struggle a little bit because a lot of people use the term, you know, China's becoming aggressive. I do not use that word. Um, the Chinese are not, in my view, becoming aggressive. Aggression is a very specific thing. We've seen Russia be aggressive, right? We understand what aggression is. Yeah. It's a, it's an armed attack. Assertive, other people use assertive. Oh, that's, True. Um, that's also true. China is asserting its its own interests, but there's something in between there, right? That that I, I never have been able to find the right word for, which is that China is engaging in a maritime expansion that is destabilizing because it imposes a different order on the maritime domain, and China is using its power. To, uh, to undermine the existing order and the existing rules-based order that the maritime domain employs to keep stability. So 
Yeah, I like that word destabilizing. Uh, that That's probably the best one I could use so far. Tell us, what is it about China's maritime expansion that is so destabilizing? The primary thing, the original problem is that China has articulated claims for itself in the East and South China Sea that are not in compliance with international law. That alone is not so much a problem as the fact that China's claims overlap with the claims of other states. And international law, for instance, gives Vietnam and the Philippines, Malaysia, Brunei, Indonesia, uh, maritime rights in the South China Sea that China is attempting to take away from them and to claim them for themselves, right? That, that space and the resources in it for themselves. And then to, to set the rules, right? Rules that uh, would govern the maritime space of East Asia differently from the international law that applies through the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. That balance that's struck in the, in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which, by the way, China was an active participant in developing. Let's get that on the table. Right. Um, every bit as active as the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia were, right? That balance of coastal state interests, uh, resource interests, uh, environmental protection, uh, and access to the maritime domain for security activities um, was a carefully struck bargain between uh, the global states. And so it has strengthened stability in the maritime domain in the 40 years since it was developed, um, and China's undermining it, right? So first of all, China... China poses a threat to stability in the maritime domain because it's it's challenging the rule sets that govern the maritime domain. Second, taking away resource rights that belong to Southeast Asian states, its, its own neighbors, and that causes a security concern. So there's regular uh, minor crises uh, between China and the other states that have really uh, provided instability in the region, right? Maritime instability. I've talked mostly about the South China Sea, but really the same is true in, in the East China Sea, right? So you've got uh, the Tongshao gas fields right up against the, the median line where uh, Japan and China and the East, East China Sea would naturally have their, their boundary. Um, that causes instability with Japan. Of course, you've got the Chinese challenge to Japanese administration of the Senkaku Islands. It's really China's expansion into the maritime domain with uh, its own narrow national interests as the guiding uh, policy for how it's pursuing its maritime expansion at the expense of both international law and its neighbors' interests. That's inherently destabilizing. So the second big issue really, of course, is Taiwan. Right. And so um, China's uh, power, and we can come back and talk about this in a little bit, but China's power is military power is structured to assume uh, eventual control over the island of Taiwan, either simply because there's no resisting the size of, of China's force or um, because uh, China uses that force to achieve uh, unification if necessary. I'm I'm among those who believe that China does still prefer not to use that force and has not decided to use its its force in any specific way, but or on any specific time scale. But they're using that power that they've developed, that really well integrated, well focused military power, to change the political dynamics of East Asia. Both of these things, right, are a maritime expansion that is destabilizing. Uh, to the region because it puts a lot of pressure 
on other states in the region, many of whom are either American allies or are American partners. And so that potential destabilization threatens what I mentioned earlier, which are the trading interests and security interests of the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Right. This is a really helpful framing for thinking about what we mean when we say China's maritime expansion and how it destabilizes some of the existing relationships, norms, rules, order overall in the region. But beyond the Navy, what else is China using on the surface, below the surface, above the surface to expand its maritime power and what kind of disruptive or destabilizing effects has that had? I like to think about naval power in terms of the functions of naval power. So the four uh, primary missions are sea control, power projection, um, naval presence, or sometimes that's referred to as naval diplomacy, um, and strategic deterrence. Navies are all structured differently to, to achieve various missions according to national objectives. The first one, sea control, right? This is the primary purpose of China's, what we, what we refer to as the anti-access area denial force structure, which is much more than, than China's Navy, but it's People's Liberation Army and all of its components have been structured to achieve control, spatial control, around Taiwan uh, as necessary in times of crisis to achieve another objective. Sea control is not something that is an objective in itself. Sea control always is a condition precedent to another objective. And so here it would be uh, the capacity to uh, for the PLA to project power across the Taiwan Strait as necessary to, to control Taiwan or to occupy Taiwan or suppress Taiwan's military response. So uh, what we see in the PLA, and in particular the PLA Navy, is the ability to enhance this um, sea control for the purpose of power projection across the strait. I think a useful definition of sea control is um, creating uh, the circumstances in a maritime context, right, um, in which the stronger side carries out its main operational task in terms of time and place without significant challenge from its opponent. And that's really the key, that last part, right? Seek control to prevent um, the United States or our allies from uh, interfering in this projection of power from the mainland across the Taiwan Strait into Taiwan. So the PLA Navy is largely structured as a sea control force to support the overall PLA mission um, to achieve this spatial control, including sea control in East Asia at will. I think it's really important to recognize that the PLA Navy is not designed to operate separately. It's designed to operate as part of an overall, what we would call anti-actus area denial system, as the Chinese would call a counter-intervention force. Mm -hmm. I would say secondarily, the PLA Navy is developing the capacity to achieve sea lane security, especially in the broader Indo-Pacific region, and to conduct naval diplomacy on a global basis. So kind of stepping through those objectives. Why don't we dwell on sea control for a moment? Sure. You described that PLA mm-hmm. Navy is largely structured as a sea control force. Mm-hmm. What I want to get at is, first, who else is involved in that sea control beyond the Navy to include non-military assets? And then second, what's your assessment now and in some foreseeable time frame? How effective are they likely to be in this sea control mission, which importantly you point out is a temporal thing in order to achieve some other objective. But how confident should Xi Jinping be with 
the PLA's capability to deliver sea control sufficient for certain military objectives. Yeah. So uh, this is a really important point that a lot of people think of sea control as overwhelming naval power to do anything anywhere, anytime. Um, that's not what sea control actually is. Sea control is about, as you say, it's temporal. It's the capacity to achieve control for a period of time in a portion of the maritime domain and to a degree necessary to achieve your other objective. So there's an element of time, there's an element of space, there's a degree of control necessary to achieve your other objective. This is why you see, for instance, sea denial being part of, of sea control, that it gets to that degree of control necessary, right? You know, to, to assess how effective the PLA is at sea control, I think you have to look at not only the Navy and the missile forces, but you also have to look at the command and control structure. You have to look at the space and satellite systems that are all designed to work together. And, and my assessment is it's a very strong system to achieve regional, that is the spatial element, right? The regional sea control. By that, I would say in China's near seas, the, the Yellow Sea, East China Sea, South China Sea, and the Western portion of the Philippine Sea at a minimum, that regional seas is the spatial area. I would say China can't do all of it at the same time, but certainly could focus its capabilities on the area north and south of Taiwan. So that's the southern portion of the East China Sea, the northern portion of the South China Sea, and the western portion of the Philippine Sea. China could focus its forces and its PLA system to achieve uh, that sea control objective there for a sufficient period of time to flow forces in the direction of Taiwan. Now, is it ironclad? In other words, can they create such a strong sea control system, sea and air control system, that the United States or, or other countries have no capacity to interfere with that power projection element? And I think the answer is no, they can't create it. Um, at least today, there's sufficient doubt in the, in the Chinese mind that they could create that sea control for a period long enough to flow forces without interference that they could achieve their objective of dominating Taiwan. Um, and that's really the whole point coming back to AUKUS. That's really the whole point of AUKUS, right, is the United States recognizes that we would be challenged alone to decrease the period of time in which China could generate sea control. Uh, we would be challenged to decrease the level of control in and around uh, the Taiwan region sufficiently to prevent China from achieving its objective. In other words, I'm not sure the United States has sufficient power alone to achieve the objective of disrupting China's plans. Generating relationships has been a really important component of our, of our strategy, and, and AUKUS is one of them. And before we move on to those relationships, as well as the out-of-area questions that will involve strategic deterrence, I just want to dwell a little bit more on this sea control system that you described. Oh, I sure. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting way of describing the portfolio mm -hmm. of capabilities and plans that China is putting into play here. You describe them as having a sea control system that you assess to be pretty effective for certain limited objectives. Mm -hmm. If they see the United States and its allies organizing and equipping and manning and training, you know, this long-term process of building up a capability to break their sea control, what does that do to their planning and what type of force structure mm. they, they want to build? Uh, how is China developing a force structure to ensure that it dominates uh, the region uh, for a period long enough to achieve control without our interference? That's a great question. 
I think there's a dynamic. Yeah, you, your question gets to this issue of the dynamic, which is that China has built a system based on missiles, right, and delivery systems for missiles. And so those are land-based missiles, aircraft-delivered missiles, you know, uh, sea and subsea launch missiles to hold an intervening force at arm's length and to achieve its objective, right? So the United States and, and our partners are developing a way to project and flow force that is less vulnerable to the missiles. So missiles uh, versus platforms mm-hmm. is uh, the Chinese calculus, right? And and they win that calculus, right? Because because big platform, lots of missiles, expensive platform, cheap, cheap, relatively cheap missiles, right? This is a really challenging dynamic for us to address. So how do you do it? Well, this is behind the concepts of things like EAPO. Expeditionary Advanced Spacing Operations. So the United States has developed various dispersal strategies. And one of them is to disperse technology, right? So uh, this is the concept between various types of unmanned aircraft or unmanned vehicles of various types, vessels, vehicles. Undersea. Yeah, undersea, oversea, on the sea, right? So unmanned platforms that help us to achieve our objective because you can make lots of them and disperse them and, and connect them through secure communication. That is one way that dispersal is, is one response, right, that, that the United States and, and our partners are developing. And you be, are beginning to see elements of political change in countries like uh, Japan and the Philippines to support this development. And I think this is partly what Australia is watching too. Just one row back in the region, Australia is looking at this dynamic and thinking about how to preserve its interests in the region, its security interests and its trading and access interests as well. Getting back to that point about AUKUS, it's looking at this dynamic and thinking through how it can support the maritime partnership. I want to expand the scope now beyond just the sea control in the Western Pacific and start thinking about those other naval missions out of area. Well, see, this is a really interesting thing to me. I've been studying this. I mean, you and I together have been studying this for a very long time, five or six years anyway, uh, on the issue of, all right, since about 2003 or four, there's been this sort of string of pearls theory, right? Sure. That boom, China's going to develop bases all across, you know, the Indo-Pacific region and perhaps even beyond. And that, that, you know, would mark the transformation of China's naval power. And we haven't seen it. Um, yes, we've seen a, a base in Djibouti. That was an interesting development, but it's not the same as a string of pearls at all. So getting back to the relationship between this and the Taiwan scenario, it's it's my conclusion that as I look at China's force structure development, that what they are actually developing is primarily focused on achieving sea control in, in the Western Pacific and setting the conditions for a future power projection capability once the Taiwan situation is resolved favorably to China's interests. Now, that's one theory. Right. Another theory is that as the United States begins to disrupt China's ability through, you know, through development of partnerships and technologies to disrupt China's sea control capability in East Asia, that China might turn to further developing its uh, power projection navy and its sea control capability in the northern Indian Ocean region in order to protect its own supply lines. Why? Well, if the United States can disrupt, the United States and our partners can disrupt China's ability to achieve sea control in, in East Asia, that extends the time, 
right? That that it will take China to achieve its objectives related to Taiwan. What that means is that China also then needs to worry about supply lines and the possibility of horizontal escalation, meaning the extension of the conflict to um, China's sea lanes in in accessing its its resources, its energy, and its markets across the Indian Ocean. The time element becomes a new problem for the Chinese. So far, they have not developed the basing system in the Indian Ocean region to achieve that extension of, of power projection and sea control into the Indian Ocean region. But you can see them probing, looking for bases, perhaps even setting up the conditions for future bases in in a number of the different places. We've looked at various places uh, together. For instance, Pakistan, you know, Gwadar and the relationship between China and Pakistan could develop in that direction. The same with either Myanmar or Bangladesh and uh, Bay of Bengal. And then, uh, of course, in the Middle East, there there are one or two places that have been reported as being of interest to the Chinese to develop bases. And what what you would expect to see if there's a shift in the Chinese strategy in response to the ability of the United States and our partners to disrupt China's uh, sea control in East Asia, that shift in strategy would be to develop the bases across the Indian Ocean region um, necessary to fight a longer war and to protect uh, access to resources, energy, and markets in, in a longer war. It could develop in a relatively short term that China could develop bases in the northern Indian Ocean region, but they haven't done that yet. Now, some people look at bases, actually what they look at is Chinese ownership of ports, and they say, well, that looks like a future base. I look at that with a little bit more skepticism. And you and I have talked about this. I have sort of a five-step approach to articulating what a naval base is. And it starts at the very lowest level. The lowest rung on that five-step ladder is it's just a friendly port. It's where you have diplomatic clearance for you know PLA naval vessel to uh, pull into port somewhere. And, and we know that China's- flag. That's right, show the flag. This is that naval diplomacy, right, that we talked about earlier as, or presence, right, as one of the key uh, missions of, of a Navy is to develop political relationships that can come in handy at, at, at a future time. And the Chinese have done this pretty well. We know that since the anti-piracy operations uh, began in December 2008, that we now have uh, 14 years of experience of the Chinese making port calls throughout the Indo-Pacific region in friendly ports. That's just that political setting, a basic fundamental political relationship. One level up would be where you have repeated port visits. And typically what you would see would be, it's called a husbanding contract. Um, a husbanding agent would be contracted to provide the support that ships need on a more regular basis when they make these port visits. There's no political uh, relationship other than the, the coastal state would welcome repeated visits by a Chinese vessel. So um, a little more permissive environment, but still just a... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Just a friendly, permissive environment as opposed to denoting any kind of political commitment. And the Chinese have experience with this. In fact, they had this in the Gulf of Aden, in the port of Aden, um, before the civil war in Yemen just essentially collapsed the country's ability to do this. And the Chinese then, uh, interestingly, the Chinese then... Um, focus more of their energy on Djibouti at that time. But importantly, China increasingly using husbanding agents and service providers that are Chinese. Chinese firms, yeah. often big central state-owned enterprises. So somewhat of a different arrangement, maybe an intermediate class of things yeah. that China is able to access that are not 
That's a good point. Yeah, that's right. It's a, there's still um, the key element as you work your way up the ladder of, of tech support is not the service available so much as, although that is important, so much as the political right. commitment of the coastal state to the naval power. Why? Because the political commitment tells you whether you're going to be able to use that base um, in times of conflict or not. So the third level up would be a sort of permanent logistical relationship. I mean, maybe this is the closest to what the what the Chinese have in uh, Djibouti. We'll come to that in a minute. But working your way up that ladder, I think the best example of it is the United States relationship with the UAE and our base in Jebel Ali, Dubai, right, which yeah. is a commercially contracted on a permanent basis, a commercially contracted facility to support um, defense logistics. That's right, to, to, to support defense logistics. That's right. As a naval officer, I pulled it in and out of Jebel Ali quite a, quite a sure. lot of times. And you can see that there is actually some measure of political commitment between the UAE and the United States based on that. It's not an alliance. It's a, it's a form of partnership, but it's not an alliance. But it's a pretty low-level partnership because the naval relationship is based on a contractual relationship as opposed to a political relationship. Moving up one level, though, is something more permanent, like where you have permanent logistical facilities and some measure of political commitment. Usually a long-term contract of some... Yeah, well, that can very well be the case, but but often it's based on on some measure of uh, of an agreement um, right. or even a treaty. Right, a state so to state. State-to-state state agreement or state-to-state state treaty, like a status of forces agreement. Right. And so you see something like this. This is what I would say Djibouti is, mm-hmm. uh, both for the United States and for and for China. It's a permanent logistical facility based on a a state-to-state agreement, a status of forces agreement. And the United States also, for instance, in uh, in Singapore, there's a permanent logistics hub there that's based on an agreement, not an alliance, but an agreement. Uh, So you see these these types of bases as the fourth level up, right? Uh, Wrong. And then the top level is really where you have an alliance, where you have an alliance, a political Alliance. It's not 100% guarantee that the maritime power can use that base for all purposes at all times, but it certainly gives access even in times of conflict where there's mutual interest involved. And so something like uh, the U.S. base in Japan, the Yokosuka base, for instance, is a good example of this. All-weather alliance and and very strong facility uh, with... It's an interesting category because it's one that's hard to envision China ever achieving, and you saying all weather reminded me of their one all weather buddy in Pakistan, where even that, I don't think that China's looking to make that an alliance relationship, right? I don't think they want to own whatever Pakistan finds itself in. And so they're not actually looking at that very high end, but so let's get to what But this is the point, isn't it, right? Because if the Chinese are not able to develop that very high end capability of alliances during conflict to support naval operations on extended extended lines of operation, then the Chinese become more vulnerable to disruption of those lines of, of communication during conflict. And so that puts the Chinese in a dilemma about how do you manage the time element of a conflict? If you can't do it quickly because your opponent has developed technologies that disrupt your sea control ability, and you don't have the capacity to endure a long conflict because you can't secure your lines of communication because you don't have the partners to do it, 
that puts China on a, on a strategic dilemma. And it's the primary reason that I am not a believer in the concept that there's a date certain by which the Chinese will use force. It's condition-based. It has to be condition-based because of the temporal and spatial elements of conflict. If you can't achieve spatial control, sea control, um, across the Taiwan Strait sufficiently to achieve power projection before you're disrupted in that ability to do it, then you need to plan for a longer war, a war of attrition, and you need to plan for how you're going to, to achieve your security of your resources and your energy and your trade during that time frame. China has not done that or, or and, and probably cannot do that. Therefore, there's a, a strong argument that the strategy of disruption, the both spatial and temporal disruption, is a good strategy to deter China's decision to use force against Taiwan sometime into the farther, much farther into the future. So let's dive in on those trade and resources. And this obviously implicates the sea lane protection mission that you've been talking about. What does China's existing force posture and ability to operate let's say specifically in the Indian Ocean now, we can think more broadly later, what capability and what level of confidence should they have that they'd be able to protect their mm. vital, especially commodity inputs, but also access to all the markets and relationships that are necessary for their survival? There's two basic ways that you can do SLOC security. One is sea control. So that, that is to say sort of the way the Chinese do it in, in East Asia which is to develop a force structure, mutually reinforcing force structure to achieve spatial control for an extended period of time. Um, and to replicate that in, in the Northern Indian Ocean would require bases and then some sort of um, similar kind of umbrella system, right, with, with missiles, whether they're based in China or whether they're based in the host country. That would be the, the, the way in which China would have the highest degree of confidence in, in its ability to um, protect its sea lanes. But we know from, for instance, the World War II in the, in the North Atlantic, um, and even from about, you know, 39, 40, 41, before the United States entered, entered the war, we were doing, you know, convoys across the North Atlantic with some significant effect. So I think the other way that the Chinese could do it is with convoy operations. And they are, in fact, um, developing a large surface force, right, with cruisers and destroyers and frigates that are um, quite lethal, quite capable, and they're developing and improving their at-sea replenishment capability. So um, in the past, we've seen China essentially do stopped-at-sea uh, uh, replacement as opposed to underway replenishment. And they're beginning to develop and, and improve that underway replenishment capability as well. So then the question becomes, all right, can China do an effective strategy of convoy right across the Indian Ocean? My view is that would be very difficult uh, for China to, to do. Number one, the length of the lines of communication. Number two, the vulnerability to exterior powers, that is states on the global exterior, like the United States, United Kingdom, uh, Japan and Australia operating together. There's no way that the Chinese could become invulnerable to submarine attacks, for instance, in that region on, on their convoys. Um, so you're looking at a situation that would be very difficult for China to do in terms of a of convoy. That said, it's an interesting thing to observe the way China's force structure is developing to potentially develop convoys and perhaps get enough supplies across the Indian Ocean 
to supplement whatever they can uh, generate on a land-based system. And of course, this all depends on exactly how contested their shipping is. If you're describing with submarine attacks on merchant shipping, that's a very that well, a full-scale conflict. I didn't actually describe that. What I described yeah. was okay. attacks on the on the Chinese Navy. On the Navy. On the Navy that's actually. escorting those ships. Right. But good point. Right. But you could you know you could interdict the merchant vessels as well. Right. Whether the merchant vessels are subject to attack is a different question. And um, I know a little bit more contentious and it depends on it depends on the nature of the cargo the ownership it's there's all, all sorts of factors that would get into that but you could disrupt the convoys uh, the convoy capability quite easily and then the merchant ships are subject to interdiction right right so attack on merchant vessels is a different question right and, and the reason i wanted to go there and lay out the spectrum of how contested the environment would be has to do with your earlier points about how good the existing Chinese platform is for the naval diplomacy and broader political relationship mission. Because ultimately, to my mind at least, the best and highest use of this extraordinary maritime capability, with which I'm including all the commercial stuff, the shipping, the ports, the trade, is that it keeps all those countries on sides. None of those countries want to choose to exclude themselves from China's economic network. And here I'm thinking about the Sri Lankas and the UAEs and all the nations in Africa that sell all their commodities to China, etc. At a lower level of contestation, which is to say the world that we're on a steady trajectory towards where there's much, much more direct economic competition. How well insulated do you think they are from those pressures, how effective have they been on, and we could get to the other missions. We're talking about the, the showing the flag, military diplomacy, sea lane protection. How much more do they need power projection-wise, strategic deterrence-wise for this to be a useful can, can strategy? I, um, touch on that point you made about, you know, countries don't want Please. to take sides. And, yeah. and, and in a sense, countries will say Sri Lanka's reliance on China, China's trade, um, is a vulnerability in this case, right? Why? Because they don't want to become subject to an attack by uh, directly supporting China. Mm-hmm. But they also don't want to lose Chinese trade. So what's their incentive? Their incentive is to stay out of the conflict. What does that mean? That means that um, China doesn't have a base of operations, right? Which means that they are then isolated to achieving their objective in the Western Pacific, essentially. I mean, in a military sense, the, right. their military objectives are isolated to the Western Pacific. So in, in a sense that uh, the global reliance on Chinese trade and the global vulnerability that states would take on um, if they were to take a side you know, to support China would, in fact, be a limiting factor for China. It's an interesting challenge that yeah. the Chinese have, have to face. Well, in our last couple minutes, let's just bring it back full circle to AUKUS. And I guess maybe that strategic deterrent piece really fits in here, because of course the centerpiece technologies involved have to do with hunting out those Chinese submarines that have a strategic deterrent capability. Okay. So first of all, let's be clear. Um, The AUKUS program is not about strategic deterrence. Strategic deterrence is nuclear deterrence. Nuclear-powered submarines and nuclear deterrence are different. Right, but, so, but they're there to look for Chinese nuclear submarines. That's and, right, and deny them their mission. Of well, they're also they're also there to do the other missions, right? Mm-hmm. So, preventing China from achieving sea control, right? Preventing China right. from uh, being able to convoy across the uh, Indian Ocean region if 
necessary, right? So, so this is what nuclear-powered submarines would be doing, whether they're American or any other partner that might be engaged in the conflict that possesses nuclear-powered submarines, sure. including potentially Australia. These are the, the kinds of things that the submarines would be particularly effective at doing, that is disrupting sea control, whether it's regional sea control in East Asia or whether it's uh, convoy operations are, are essentially local sea control moving in time. It's a, it's a little bit like you know, point defense as opposed to uh, right. zone defense, right? So, right. so that is, um, by the way, convoy operations are essentially a sea control mission. Mm-hmm. Right, so just very localized, very, very just very localized. Yeah. That's right. So submarines are really good at disrupting sea control capabilities. So that's one really important factor that the Australian submarines might find themselves engaged in. So, in closing, what should we be looking at moving forward with this AUKUS alliance? With, or excuse me, AUKUS not alliance, uh, whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's a good chance for you well, to describe what it is. <laughs> but given what we've now discussed about sure. China's maritime strategy, what are the last couple of things we ought to be watching and thinking about? So you're right. It's not an alliance, although there is an alliance between the United States and Australia, and there is an alliance. But that construct is not its uh, be, be, That's right. Between the United States and the United Kingdom, right, through NATO. So we have two alliances that form the foundation of AUKUS. And we have the third, like I mentioned earlier, the five eyes we have. Right. We have these, these various existing relationships that um, AUKUS just sort of builds on. And as I said, it's really a, brings all three partners together, focused on the same set of objectives, which is to develop um, capabilities that can disrupt China's maritime expansion sufficiently that uh, we don't see China making the decision tomorrow to confidently use force either across the Taiwan Strait or, or in any other part of the region. You know, one of the things we haven't really talked about is why the UK? You know, why the UK is particularly interested in this? Well, I mean, one of this, it gets back to Brexit. The UK is looking at uh, expanding its its defense uh, relationships as an economic matter as much as it is a political matter. They did an integrated review also two years ago now, I think, that recognized that now that Britain has chosen to separate itself economically and to a certain degree politically from the continent, that um, it's got to get back to its own basics, right, which are it's a maritime state that trades for wealth, that needs to develop sea power and to operate with alliances, and that it does therefore have a global role. It's not just its seat at the UN. It's not just its traditional relationship. It's its vital interests today require it to have a global role. And so you see Britain operating with the United States and, and Australia more uh, as, a, as a partner thinking about how to support these global interests, putting British, British power behind it. Britain is refreshing uh, the integrated review uh, under, under this new administration. Um, and so we may see a little bit more uh, flesh on the bones about what this means for Britain in the larger Indo-Pacific region. My personal view is that Britain's historic ties in the Indian Ocean region may make it a bit more useful in that region as a deterrent to the longer time period of a horizontal escalation style conflict. But for Britain, this is about looking to diversify economic relationships and reorient its economy post-Brexit and reinforcing its strategic interests with its, its political decision. So getting back, you know, to kind of the drivers of, of AUKUS, we looked at China's 
expanding maritime power, you know, how it's focused on sea control in East Asia, but secondarily developing capabilities potentially in the future to develop power projection and sea control across the, uh, the northern Indian Ocean region. But we've also seen ways in which both the United States and its partners in terms of technology and in terms of strategic development have looked for ways to disrupt the spatial and temporal um, aspects of China's strategy in both the Pacific and the Indian Ocean regions. And so AUKUS is part of that larger strategy to find ways to disrupt China's decision to to return the disruption, uh, the favor of disruption, to disrupt China's decision to uh, use force or politically unite with Taiwan anytime soon. On that disruptive note, I just want to thank you for sharing such a wide-ranging and thought-provoking set of insights on China in the Indo-Pacific, on the AUKUS network, and how things are shaping up in this all-important theater for sea power and for strategic competition in the future. So thank you again, and we wish you fair winds and following seas. Thanks so much. It's a, it's a real privilege to talk to you, Isaac. I appreciate it. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Peter. positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.